Welcome to the Sunday School lesson from Joelton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills. I'm glad we can be together today. Our lesson today comes from the Old Testament book of Nahum. That's a book you don't hear a lot about. He's one of the minor prophets, but I think he has something important to tell us. Our lesson is titled, God is Our Refuge. But before we begin the lesson, let's bow our heads for prayer. I want us to pray together the prayer that Paul prayed for the Philippians, Philippians 1, 9 through 11. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Now, as we look into our lesson, our text is going to be from Nahum chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at the beginning of the chapter, verses 2 through 8, and then 14 and 15. But our lesson focus is on God's holiness. God's holiness requires Him to demonstrate absolute fidelity, to be true to Himself by taking vengeance on His foes and providing a refuge for those who love Him. His holiness means that we can put our complete confidence, our complete trust in God, and never be disappointed. Now, the book of Nahum was written not to the Israelites, not to the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom, but it was written to the people of Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and the Assyrians were the military political power of their day. They were known for their cruelty. They were seen as unbeatable, unstoppable. Now, they had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. They had destroyed its cities. They hauled its people away in captivity. Now, only the southern kingdom of Judah was left. That was all that remained of God's people, Judah and Benjamin. And so, you can imagine that the people of the southern kingdom were asking themselves, will we be next? Can anything stop this Assyrian empire? Should we be hedging our bets? Look at how powerful the gods of the Assyrians are. Should we begin to worship them as well as worshiping the Lord? Is the Lord God enough of a God for us? And so the prophet Nahum comes to them with a definite message. God will take vengeance on Nineveh, and God will be a refuge for Judah. Now, as we look at the main lesson, the prophet's message to them is, God is a jealous God, a God who takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. When we hear God described in this way, it, it strikes our ears as being funny in a way. It seems strange to hear God described as a jealous God, a God who takes vengeance. But while these are, are things that are inappropriate for us, they are appropriate for a holy God. And so we tend to protest to say, well, this isn't the God that I serve or the God that I want to serve. But it's because it's based upon our human understanding 
of what it means to be jealous or to take vengeance. When we think of taking revenge, we dream of inflicting injury, uh, maybe humiliating someone who has done us wrong, seeing that they get what's coming to them. And so it's easy for us to see how this is wrong. We know the harm that jealousy does. We see crimes committed every day because of jealousy and the desire for revenge. But when these terms are applied to God, they take on a different meaning, a different nuance. Jealousy can also be defined as a zealous vigilance, a protectiveness, an intolerance of rivalry. Now, when we look at it in this way, we can see that jealousy is not altogether a bad thing. We would expect a loving husband or loving wife to be jealous, to want to share their spouse with no one else. In the same way, God is jealous of His own glory. He will not share His glory with another, with another God. When we speak of God's vengeance, we mean that God inflicts punishment for offenses. God exacts satisfactions for wrongs done. In other words, God is a fair judge. We are punished for our offenses. The innocent aren't scapegoated. The guilty aren't let off the hook. Now, <clears throat> there are many words that we can use to describe God. We can say God is righteous, God is just, God is faithful, God is kind, loving. All of these are attributes of God. When we say God is holy, we're not describing an aspect of God. We are stating the very essence of God. All of these other characteristics, mercy and love and kindness and gentleness, these arise from the fact that God is holy. When we say God is holy, we mean God is separate from all other. God alone is perfect in himself. That God is perfectly and completely God. He can be no other. To be holy means God is utterly unique in a class, in a category, by himself. Now, it doesn't mean that God meets a standard of excellence. It means God is the standard of excellence. God is the standard of all that's true and beautiful and good. So, to say God is holy, God is the only standard. Truth, faithfulness, love, mercy, kindness, all of these arise from God himself, from who he is. Jealousy is required to maintain God's holiness. Jealousy is the zealous vigilance that God shows in protecting His glory. He will share His glory with no other. God will permit no rival. No one is allowed to share His rightful place as the sovereign Lord. A God who is not a jealous God is a God who cannot be holy. So, a holy God is a jealous God and a vengeful God. A holy God is a God who exacts punishment, a God who requires offenses against him be satisfied. God cannot simply forgive and forget our sins. God cannot allow them to not be dealt with. Now, this is because of what sin actually is. We tend to think of sins as the acts that we commit when we lie, cheat, steal, things like this. 
But these are merely the outward manifestation of sin. It's how the sin shows itself. The actual sin is a matter of the heart. It's the inward motive. It's the intent of the heart. Jesus made this clear when he taught us, the man who looks on a woman with lust has already committed the sin of adultery. The sin is there in the motive of the heart before any outward action has been committed. In the same way, Jesus said the man who's angry with his brother is already guilty, even if he never actually raises his hand against his brother. The heart is guilty. Sin at its core is rebellion against God. It's the motive of the heart that seeks evil instead of God's way. Sin is the determination to please ourselves rather than God. Romans 8, 7 tells us the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws and it never will. The mind of the flesh is hostile to God. Now, when we understand sin in this way, we realize why God cannot simply forgive and forget sins. He can't ignore the sins against him. If sins were only bad actions, maybe this would be the case. But because sin is hostility against God, when we sin, we are in rebellion against God, and God cannot ignore this. His holiness will not allow him to have rivals. His holiness requires that God be the only. But we do know sins can be forgiven. We know God has worked out a plan of salvation, a plan that where we do not have to be punished, where we are saved from our sins. So, if God must take vengeance in order to be a holy God, how can anyone be saved? How can anyone who has tried to usurp his place as God receive salvation? Scripture shows us plainly how salvation works. Acts chapter 16, the Philippine jailer asked Paul and Silas, What must I do to be saved? The answer they give him, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Romans 10, 9 and 10, That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. John 20.31, But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. And of course, probably the most well-known Bible verse, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. So, if we believe in Jesus Christ, we are saved. But how does this work? We've just spent a lot of time explaining that a holy God is required to punish sins because sin is rebellion, and God cannot allow rebellion to continue and continue to be a holy God. So, what does belief in Jesus Christ, how does it change this? How does this make atonement for our sins? Well, to understand this, we need to understand what it means to believe. To believe in Christ is not simply to make a mental affirmation. It's not just to agree to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. It's not saying the right words or following the right formula. 
John Piper writes, If I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, in the same way that I believe that Vladimir Putin is the leader of Russia, have I fulfilled the conditions to be saved? Or does belief mean more than this? And then Piper goes on to remind us, even the devil and his demons believe in Jesus to this extent. They recognize the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. Mark 1.24, the demon at Capernaum, was possessing a man in the synagogue, and when Jesus drove him out, the demon cried out, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Later, when Jesus heals the two demon-possessed men in the region of the Gadarenes, the demons respond, What do you want with us, Son of God? So, we can see that even the demons believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But to believe in Jesus is much more than this. Belief is seeing Jesus for who He really is, seeing Him as infinitely valuable. It's not just acknowledging the fact that He's the Son of God, but seeing Him as infinitely precious and valuable. So to believe in Christ is to switch loyalties from false gods to the true God. It's to swear allegiance to Christ as the one true God. To believe is my declaration that I will enter a vow of faithful service to Christ. It's accepting Christ as Lord. So, when we believe in Christ in this way, we are no longer rebels against God. Then God is able to forgive. We no longer have to be punished for our sins. We can be saved, restored to our right relationship to God because we have submitted to His authority. And now we promote His glory rather than our own. Now, why does the prophet want to make sure that we understand this? Why does the prophet want to get this message across that God is a jealous God who takes vengeance on His foes? Well, when we understand this, we understand that God also provides a refuge for His people. Taking vengeance on His foes, providing refuge for His people, both of these are aspects of God's holiness. Because God is true, because God always acts righteously, we can be confident in both of these. If the one is true, the other is true as well. So we can be utterly confident in our trust in God. His fidelity cannot be challenged. When God called the Israelites into a covenant with Him, He promised to be the only hope they would ever need, the only God they would ever need. He promised He would provide everything for His people. Now, we look around us today and the temptation is to think, maybe we need some additional help. Maybe our God isn't enough. But Nahum wants to make it clear, our God is a holy God, totally faithful to take vengeance on His enemies, to provide a refuge for those who trust in Him. In verse 7, he writes, The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in Him, but He will pursue His foes into the realm of darkness. Now, you can imagine when those who are listening to Nahum, when they hear uh, Nahum give this message, you can imagine them responding, Oh yeah? Well, why are God's enemies flourishing while God's people are in danger of disappearing? 
You can imagine them saying, this sounds good, but look at the facts. Look at what's right in front of your face. Nineveh is flourishing. Nineveh appears unstoppable. They are cruising along, victory after victory. In the meantime, the northern kingdom has totally disappeared. The southern kingdom is facing grave danger. God's own people are in danger. And yet, the Assyrians, the Ninevites, they are continuing to prosper. The prophet gives us his answer. He tells them, God is slow to anger. But he wants them to understand, this is not because God is weak. On the contrary, God is more powerful than they could, they could ever imagine. He writes, The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm. Clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. So the prophet's message was, don't mistake mercy for weakness. Don't assume that God is not working because he can't work, that God is all bark and no bite. The prophet admits God is often slow to act, but it's to give us the time and the opportunity to repent. We remember that this was not the first time that God had issued a prophecy against Nineveh. 150 years before this, God had sent the prophet Jonah, and Jonah was sent to Nineveh with the message, you are going to be destroyed. God has observed your wickedness, and he will wipe you out. Now, you remember the result of that. The people of Nineveh listened to Jonah. There was a great repentance, and because of that, God had mercy. God spared them. Now, it's 150 years later. They have gone back to their old ways. And the prophet wants them to understand, God spared you not because he was weak, but because he was merciful. I was a high school principal for a number of years, and one of the jobs of the principal is to be the disciplinarian. It was often my job to discipline students. And it was interesting. There were some students that you could give them a second chance. You could call them in. You could say, this behavior is not acceptable. It needs to change. If it doesn't change, there are going to be consequences. And they would take you at their word. They would change their behavior. But there were other students. If you showed them mercy, if you, if you said, I'm going to let you get by this time, but there will be consequences in the future, they mistook mercy for weakness. And they assumed that because they had gotten off this time, they would get off the next time. And so their behavior never would change. We have to make sure that we don't fall into this trap to assume that because God has been merciful, that God will be slow to act forever. The prophet wants us to know God is powerful. And he lets them to know this in several ways. First of all, he points out what God has done in the past. He refers them back to when God parted the sea, when God parted the waters. And those who heard uh, the prophet, 
they would know what he was referring to. There were two well-known incidents in the history of Israel where God stepped in and parted the waters. The first time was the parting of the Red Sea as God led them out of Egypt. And then the second time was the parting of the Jordan River to allow them to invade and to conquer the land of Canaan. And so the prophet is pointing them back to this time and saying, remember the power of God when God stepped in and created a miracle in order to provide you with what you needed. Now, the prophet also reminds them by pointing to the environment in which they lived. They lived in a harsh environment. They were familiar with whirlwinds, with storms, and they knew the power of a desert storm. Now, we can see the power of natural processes around us, tornadoes, fires, earthquakes. The prophet is telling them, look at the natural world that God created. You can see its power. And you know the one who created it is certainly powerful. And these are two good strategies for us to use on ourselves today when we find uh, that we need a reminder of how powerful God is. We can look back at nature. In fact, we can see uh, the power of nature just this past week as we've been watching the wildfires out in California. And you see those those giant walls of fire sweeping through an area and know that there's nothing man can do to stop it. Or you can think back to how God has acted in your lives. You can think back to how God has redeemed you in the past, how God came through when it was needed. And so all of us have observed God's power in our lives. And the prophet wants them to understand God's power means that God's foes will be destroyed, those who trust in Him will be provided a refuge. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in Him, but with an overwhelming flood, He will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue His foes into the realm of darkness. These are the opposite sides of the same coin. Both are aspects of God's holiness. Both show that God is true. Galatians 6 tells us, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Do we actually believe this? Have we deceived ourselves into thinking that we'll get away with doing wrong? If we really believed that sin will be punished every time, then we wouldn't do it. We're not going to do something that we believe is going to hurt us. But we find lots of ways to rationalize, to say, well, God's going to let me get away with it this time. But as the prophet warned them, God will take vengeance on those who are enemies against him. But the prophet wraps this up by saying, therefore, take heart, Judah. He says, look, there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. So he's telling them, don't give up. Don't assume that you need to follow after other gods. Let the Lord be the only God that you need. Continue to serve the Lord. Celebrate your festivals. Fulfill your vows. You do not have to fear the enemy invader. 
Think of the relief that this message would bring to see disaster averted, to know that you've been spared. Back in the early 1960s, the United States went through what was called the Cuban Missile Crisis with the Soviet Union, where we blockaded Cuba in order to prevent the Soviet Union from installing nuclear weapons there. And for five, six, seven days, the world was watching as the Russian ships steamed toward our blockade. And the question was, would this be the beginning of a nuclear war? And we didn't know what would happen. But you can imagine the relief when the Russian ships turned away and we realized that crisis had been averted, that there would be no nuclear war at this time. So you can imagine the, the joy that is greeted by the message that the prophet brings. Celebrate. Fulfill your vows. Continue to be faithful because no longer will the wicked invade you. Now, this was, this was true at least for a while. The problem is, within 30, 40, 50 years, the people of the southern kingdom had also been conquered. Now, the invader wasn't the Assyrians. The Assyrians were wiped out in about 612 B.C. The invader was the Babylonians who had taken care of the Assyrians, and now they were taking care of Judah. But Judah found itself invaded. You have to look at the prophet's words. The prophet had told them, God cares for his people. And then the prophet had told them, you will not be invaded. Now, however, they find themselves invaded. Uh, Judah was invaded by the Babylonians. Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was burned. The people were hauled captive to Babylon. So, was this prophet a true prophet? Was he prophesying truly when he gives them this message? And we have to realize that, yes, the prophet was true. When the prophet assured them God punished his enemies, God was a refuge to his people. The question becomes, who are the enemies of God? Who are the people of God? Now, the people of Judah made the mistake of assuming that the Ninevites were automatically the enemy of God. However, they weren't the enemy of God when they were repenting. When God sent Jonah to the Ninevites and they repented, he did not destroy them. He did not treat them as an enemy. When the people of Judah refused to serve God and begin worshiping other idols, God would no longer refer to them or would no longer see them as his people. They were no longer under his protection. So, the people of Nineveh were not automatically God's enemies. The people of Judah were not automatically God's people. It was the question of who is being obedient and who is not. Now, the people of Judah, you may, they may want to charge God with unfaithfulness to say, you've shown mercy to your enemies. You haven't treated your friends justly. But God was just. God is just. God continues to be just today. You know, we often make the same mistake. We want to blame God when things happen in our lives and say, well, God hasn't lived up to his promises. We are supposed to be God's people, and yet he hasn't protected us. He hasn't done what he's claimed he will do for us. When many times the problem is 
we are not really the people of God. We are assuming we are God's people, but we are not living in a covenant relationship with God. We are not living in a relationship of obedience, a, a relationship where God is Lord. And so when we're not in that relationship, we cannot expect that God will treat us as his people, as his friends. We are not God's friends in name only. We are God's friends when we are obedient to him, when we allow God to be Lord. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this lesson that you've given us, this reminder that you are eternally true, you are eternally faithful. When we look around us today, we can see the temptation to think, is God enough for me? I look at the world, we see the danger, we see everything that's going on, and we think, do we need other things besides God? But the prophet has given us the clear message, continue to serve the Lord, continue to fulfill your vows. God is enough, God will be enough, and we know that that's certainly true. Help us to take this lesson to heart in your name. Amen.